Tonight's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 21. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in the, in the, and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the shepherds, as the shepherds, at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, tonight we have a, a guest speaker, and I want to introduce uh, to him, him to you by way of a little bit of explanation um, if you're a little bit new, at least, or brand new to Redemption Church, you know that we describe ourselves as one church with 10 congregations. Uh, we have 10 congregations around Maricopa County, and as well as in ten, uh, Tucson and in Flagstaff. And each congregation has their own lead pastor, like I am here at Arcadia, and, a, and a, a, an elder team and a staff and all of that. But there is also a lead pastor over all of redemption, over all 10 congregations. He doesn't have his own congregation, but rather he is the pastor to all of the pastors. And that's Tyler Johnson, and he's here with us tonight. And I want you to know that it was really Tyler's vision, along with a couple of other people, but primarily Tyler's vision more than six years ago to uh, have the idea of merging East Valley Bible Church and Praxis Church in 2011 and creating Redemption Church, saying that we were, we were going to be better together. And at that time, we only had three congregations, and now we have ten. So this is the guy behind all of that and who is our leader. So please welcome Tyler tonight. Thanks, Frank. It's great to be with you all tonight. Uh, kudos to you guys uh, for being a part of the initiation of this new service. This is a big deal, and you all being here means a lot. So on my behalf to you, thank you uh, for that. We are in the second week of our series in Advent titled The Justice of Christmas. The Justice of Christmas. When that passage in Luke chapter 2 was read, what did you guys think of? Anybody? Think of anything? Say that louder. What, somebody said it. What is it? Somebody said Linus. You know, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, the moment Charlie Brown's asking all of these questions, what's the purpose of Christmas? And he's kind of really grumpy about it. And this is a joke. And he's lamenting the consumerism. Yes to Charlie Brown for that. And then in the end, there's this moment where they're on the stage and Linus comes up and he recites that passage. And when he does, 
all kinds of people. I love Charlie Brown Christmas. I love watching it with my kids. I love drinking hot chocolate with peppermint in it. I love the gifts. I love all that it means. Now, I don't want to bust your bubble, but I want to tell you, Christmas comes from the Bible, and the story of the Bible doesn't conjure up all of that imagination. Family, yes, but the moment is much realer than Charlie Brown Christmas. And the desire that's within the heart of the people for something to change is as thick and likely thicker than anything we've experienced right now in our current context. There was people that rightfully could sing, come thou long expected Jesus, because they were crying out in their pain. They were crying out for justice. They were screaming against injustice, and they didn't feel like there was anything, anything that could actually fix it. So they were saying, we need help from somewhere bigger, from somewhere stronger. And we're going to look at that today. That's the whole notion of this series, The Justice of Christmas. The word justice can be defined many different ways, all kinds of different ways justice can be defined. But one person said it in a way that I really like it, and it's that justice is what love looks like in public. And so you know, Jesus came in such a way that he said this is all public truth, and he came for, yes, private love, but for public love ultimately. That love is not meant to be just me individually with people, but it has to do with all of creation, all of society, all of our city, all of our country, and all of our world. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But in order for us to see the justice of Christmas, we have to do justice to Christmas. And what I was trying to bring out in the Charlie Brown illustration with Linus is that if that's all our Christmas is about, we are not doing justice to Christmas and I'm going to make a strong statement early on in this message to say I think far too few Christians, people that say would say they're Bible adhering, have not done justice to Christmas. So on that notion, let me pray, and then we're going to get started. Father, we thank you for the reality of your coming, that you are bringing forth righteousness. God, you are bringing forth justice. You're bringing forth love. And God, in the world that we live in right now, we are in desperate, desperate need of real, true, authentic, divine, powerful love. God, show us your ways in this passage. Um, before we start, speak to those who are hurting. God, as we pray often, we pray that you and your word would comfort those who are afflicted. And God, that it would afflict those who are comfortable. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So i got to start with a confession uh, before we get into this passage, which has everything to do with this passage. I have a problem with Christmas, and I have a problem with Christmas fundamentally because I have a problem with the Bible. And here's what I mean by that. I am a true middle class. I'm white. I came from an environment. My father's a public school teacher, now retired, but he's still coaching at a public high school. My mother was just an assistant in many offices through, but it was a dual income family, and I was raised around many wealthy people. I was also an athlete. That's actually what brought me to Arizona. And what happens when you grow up in an environment like that, and you're an athlete, is you're connected with very prominent people. And that really makes a difference. We would all affirm that. That's why when people go out on the job hunt, 
there's this line that will come out when they're hitting brick walls oftentimes. And many people will say it. And they'll say, it's all about who you what? No. So there's a benefit to me in that I knew a lot of people fundamentally based upon what my dad did, the environment we were born into, the people that it connected me with. In the end, I was very benefited. I had a lot of privileges, you could say, in the midst of this. I didn't experience things that tons of people in the world and tons of the people in our country actually experience. So here's why that creates, for me, a problem with the Bible. History is written by winners. That's true. The Bible's not. The Bible's not. It's the absolute opposite of that. The Bible is written from the perspective of the poor, from the perspective of the oppressed, from the perspective of the enslaved, from the perspective of the conquered, of the occupied, and of the defeated. So when I approach and have so many times Luke chapter 2, I'm just like, this is great, it's the news of the gospel, but I miss, who's the gospel coming to? Where is it going? What is it ultimately saying? And when Jesus uses in Luke, the first people to take forth his message are shepherds, I miss that. I never think about it. I think about Linus. That's not what Luke or the Bible's ultimately trying to do. And we must be honest, sitting in a congregation in Upper Arcadia, butting up against Camelback Mountain, that many of us are in a place where we have to start and go, this is hard for me because the perspective I'm bringing to the Bible is not the perspective of the Bible. The perspective of the Bible is bottom up and I'm living in a world very much top down, which hear me on this when I say this, okay? I'm with you. I'm admitting I have the problem with the Bible. We do. I'm not saying everything about that's wrong. There's huge parts of that that are a gift that God would say. But there's a very real sense where I do myself a favor to turn myself up upside down, stand on my head, and then read the Bible. Not literally. That's an image. But that we would do that to understand, man, look at the way the Bible's told. Not one place, but all over the place. It's written fundamentally from this perspective. So as we get into Luke chapter 2, we're going to slow ourselves down primarily around two characters. One of the characters is a plural because it's a group of them. But the first one's God, the Lord. It's said all over Luke chapter 2. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the initiator, the instigator, the deliverer of the message. One's the Lord. The second one is the them that's all over the passage, and the them is the shepherd. So let's look at this. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. Now, let me ask you a question. How many people in here actually know a shepherd? Yasu does. Um, and his wife, primarily, they're from Ethiopia. Who else did? Someone else in here did. Someone this morning said, I do. Um, in Arizona, in northern Arizona, there's a Navajo man. But most of us don't know a shepherd. And that puts us at a deficiency of not fully understanding what shepherds were or whom they were. But I'll tell you this, and we're going to get into it in more detail here in a minute. But the minute that you hear there were shepherds out in this area tending their flock, if you were reading this from our economic vantage point, the equivalent of that then, you'd be like, oh, shepherds. 
Like you wouldn't even think much about shepherds, yet you had benefited from them. So it says, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord, that's where we're going to start, of the Lord, appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. This passage is baked, chocked full of God's action. This doesn't start, this scene doesn't start without God coming to, and in a very real way, making an appearance among the shepherds. The shepherds see an angel of the Lord, and then they see the glory of the Lord shine all around them, and the result is it creates fear. Now, so you know, this is not odd in the Bible. There are multiple times in the Bible where people encounter an angel of the Lord, and because it's an angel of the Lord, with all of this glory and majesty, they'll fall on their face, and at some point, they begin to worship the angels. The difference between when you worship an angel, the angels will refuse worship, because what they'll say is, all we are is servants of the Most High God, don't worship me. But then there's these moments where people actually encounter the Lord, and they fall at his feet. One of those is a godly man, a prophet in the Old Testament named Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 23, this passage should come on the screen, Ezekiel says this, So I arose and went out into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there. I'm not certain what that totally is, but the glory of the Lord stood there like the glory, and he's trying to figure something. It's like the glory that I had seen at the Chabar Canal. And then he says, and I fell on my face. Now keep that up there for a minute and think about this for a minute. I promise you there was not a moment where Ezekiel encountered the glory of the Lord and went, you know what I should do right now? Fall on my face. That's not how it worked. He wasn't thinking at that moment. He wasn't living neck up. Like it wasn't cognitive. It wasn't rational. It was all neck down. It was all emotion. It was all the reality of power. And he just went, boom, and he fell on his face. There's a moment where John in the book of Revelation sees the glorified Christ. And he says, I fell on my face as though dead. That he shone around me. I fell on my face as though dead. This reality of what the shepherds are experiencing, the angel of the Lord, the glory of the Lord shining all around them, makes us ask a question about the Lord and his glory. And the first one is this. Why is it this substantive? Why the falling on their face? The first thing is this. The glory of the Lord is a power. It's like this. I'm the father of four kids. And my two younger daughters are five and four. And there'll be these moments where they're super loud in the house. Everybody's loud. The boys are playing hockey and the girls are screaming and yelling. And then the girls will run off and they'll go into their room and they'll shut their door. And I'm like, thank God, right? Less noise. They shut their door and you'll hear them chattering to each other. Da, 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 da. They're speaking back and forth to each other. And then all of a sudden it'll get really quiet. And if you're a good parent when it gets really quiet, if it gets to like five minutes, eh, I wonder what's going on. If it gets to like 10 minutes, you're going, I should probably get up there. And then it's like 20 minutes, you're like, I really should go, right? At this point, somebody might be dead. There might be a dresser on top of a child. One of them might have suffocated, but something needs to happen. And I'll walk in the room, and if they're not in their beds, they'll fall to the ground, right? And I'll, I'll think to myself, that's not the best way to display that you aren't doing anything wrong. You're falling to the ground. Something's obviously going on. 
But a lot of times, nothing is. Or if they're in their beds, they'll take the covers and boom, shove them over their head and then just try to sit there quiet and then they'll, <laughs> they'll kind of laugh, you know, at those moments. But there's something when dad or mom walks in the room, a power that makes them fall and or hide, whether they've done something right or wrong. When people encounter God, the Lord of Lords, the Bible says, the King of Kings, they can't have a moment where they go, what should I do now? They just go, bam, and fall on their face or do stuff really stupid like Peter. Should we build for you a house, right? And it's just like, no, at the Mount of Transfiguration. But it's like that. There is a power to God. At times in the Bible, the Lord in his glory literally confuses things he's told people to do. So there's these moments where the tabernacle's traveling, his glory comes in and there's clouds in there, and the very things he told the priests to do, to worship, they're prevented from doing. These other points, people are prostrated. We said this. But the glory of the Lord is also transforming. And I want you to see this. When Jesus comes on the scene, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that the glory of the Lord is displayed in the face of Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, as we look at Jesus, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're changed. Paul experienced this on the road to Damascus as he encountered Christ. People experience this all the time as they look at the face of the real person of Jesus Christ displayed for us in the Gospels. So if it's that kind of power, it can be really confusing. It can be very prostrating. At times, it's really, really powerful. The question is, do we want that power, really? Or do we just kind of want, just give me a little bit of church, right? Give me a, some of this, but that seems kind of freaky. I'm not certain I totally want that. But God is that big. This question of fundamentally, do we really want to look at what it is to do justice to Christmas? If it begins like this, begins with God displaying himself and fear coming about. And if we're going to do justice to Christmas, we have to ask ourselves this question. As we come through this message in this time of our hearing from the word of God, we must understand to whom and how God is revealing himself. Whom is he revealing himself to? Where is he revealing it? And how is he revealing it? We have to ask. This is where we get at the them. The them in this passage is the shepherds, and they are the central point. They are the interaction of the Lord coming to them, to the them, shepherds. Who are the shepherds? If we don't know it very well, it's very clear he's coming to the shepherds. Now, I just want to do this quickly as the passage is up there for you to see how central this is. Remember, the them, and when they're speaking, the us is these shepherds. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, shepherds. They, shepherds, were filled with fear. An angel said to them, fear not. He brings the gospel fundamentally, talking all about what that is through verse 13. Then he says, glory to God in the highest, the great God, the glorious God, the glory whom you've just seen has created fear, the glory that prostrates people. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them, from the shepherds, because the angels had come, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, found Mary and Joseph, 
Later on, they made known the saying that had been said to them. The shepherds returned, and they began to communicate all they had heard and seen. So if you're in this scene, we got to stop on Linus, and we've got to go, it's about the Lord revealing something to shepherds. Let me stop and say this. Why is he revealing it to shepherds, and who are the shepherds? Let's start with the second question. Shepherds were unquestionably poor. Poor. Most scholars would say they, if they had a house, they lived in a 15 by 15 home. No cabinetry. You know why? They didn't have anything to put in the cabinets. No closets. You want to know why? They had one pair of clothes. Most shepherds went about in sheepskins or goatskins that they would wear fundamentally outside. These were people who were very, very hardworking. They were, in fact, a nomadic people. They went to green pastures because they had to lead their sheep there so their sheep could lay down and do what they needed to do so they could shear the sheep and produce clothing and they could milk the sheep at different points and they could create an industry out of them. They were very, very hardworking people. They were of humble estate. The very thing that Mary says, I am one who is lowly and of humble estate. They were very concerned with their family. Why would anybody do this job? Well, one, it was the job handed down to them, in most cases, by their families. Another one is they had to provide for their families. So they moved. They moved to different places, fundamentally to make a living. These were people that were providing for society essential ingredients, and yet society overlooked them. At many points, marginalized them. Never embrace them into community because these were people who stunk, right? They're around manure, right? They're out in the fields. They're in the midst of dirt. They're likely not groomed people in the midst of this. They were overlooked, and yet they were contributing essential things to society. They were an unthanked people whose work was presumed upon. They were an unthanked people whose work was presumed upon. Here's the challenge for many of us with the Bible, is we hear something like that and we go, oh, wow, but we never make the total connection to what that might be today. And if we begin to start to make it to what it might mean today, it gets disruptive because it might disrupt us and it might mean things for us. When I was given this uh, passage to teach through, the way in which the six of the 10 congregations that are teaching through this for Advent titled this was migrants, that the parallel to nomadic shepherds was migrants. And in order to illustrate this, to really put real humanity to it, uh, we've invited neighborhood ministries, specific Alfonso Vasquez, if you would come up here, if you guys would welcome Alfonso to the stage, I want to ask him some questions. Alfonso, thanks so much for being with us. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, just in general, how you came to neighborhood, how you're there, and then specifically, the question is, how have you seen Jesus on your immigration journey? Uh, hello, my name is Alfonso Vasquez, uh, 25 years of age, and just to give you guys a little bit uh, of my background, uh, my family, we immigrated to the United States when I was just four years old. Uh, at the time, my father and mother uh, had a conversation uh, back in Mexico, and they knew that my siblings and I did not have a future uh, 
in our little town of Guanajuato, uh, where we were born. And if we were to stay back in Mexico, we would, we would not be able to attend school or break the cycle, cycle, cycle of poverty that was affecting my family. So my uh, mother and father uh, made the choice that they would uh, move to uh, immigrate to America. And we came into the United States without a proper authorization. And I was uh, too young uh, to uh, understand what was going on. But I remember uh, after coming to the US, uh, life became very difficult. Uh, I still remember uh, when I was just a kid walking to the local store with my father and him asking us to run back home. And I would ask my father, why did we have to run back home? And he said, there was a, a bus uh, by uh, Immigration and Customs uh, removing people from a local hotel. And these were just immigrants that were trying to uh, come to the same dream that my family had uh, come to the United States for. And my image of coming to America was not the image that uh, was taking place in front of my eyes. Uh, I still recall when my father uh, left our family uh, of six uh, and, my and my mother. Uh, he, he never came back from work uh, one evening and uh, reality struck that uh, it was not going to be easy. And I still recall uh, my mother uh, having two choices. One choice was to either uh, stay back um, in Arizona and fight, uh, fight for uh, my family, fight for us to have a better future. And she decided to uh, stay back despite not having uh, a support group that could uh, help my family out. And she honestly thought about going back to Mexico, but she knew by going back to Mexico that was just going to cut our dreams short. And that was not an option for my mother. And uh, I said this earlier, my mother's faith could move mountains. And for my siblings and I to see her faith in a dark time like that was just uh, motivation for my siblings and I. And my sister Grisal is here today, and I'll bring her uh, back up and into my story uh, shortly, but after that, uh, our, my family, we encountered neighborhood ministries, and I still remember being in the second grade uh, with my friends from the community. We would ride our bikes around, and we knew at this local church, uh, they would have worship service early morning, and right when they would go into service, they would leave muffins, cookies. So my friends and I would just ride our bikes, and Honestly, we would like stuff our pockets and just go on about our day. But we knew that every Sunday we could go come back to this place and find cookies, muffins, chocolate. And we couldn't afford to ask our, my mother and my friends as well to ask our, our parents for a simple dollar uh, to go to the local store. So one morning, Kid Danley uh, spotted my friends and I, and she called us. She called us out, and we're like, holy shoot, we're in trouble. And I was like, my mom is going to like spank me right now. But Kid just wanted to invite us to Kids Club. And that's where my siblings uh, uh, and myself and other friends from our neighborhood who were in, um, in desperate need of attention, love, and just looking to, find for, uh, looking to find a place where we would be welcomed. And neighborhood ministries did exactly this. And little by little, people started to trust us in our community. And now we were not just the immigrant uh, family in the neighborhood, uh, 
that was afraid, but you know, we had a second family, a neighborhood ministries, and uh, it was just a blessing to come across neighborhood ministries, but meanwhile, we still had that fear of being uh, deported, uh, going to, uh, to school and coming home and not seeing my mother was a big fear. Uh, and all through high school, we, li we lived under that, that dark cloud. And especially when uh, SB 10, S are you guys familiar with SB 1070? It uh, took place uh, a couple years ago here in Arizona. And that was a time of darkness for my community and my family. Uh, I still remember uh, coming back home from uh, soccer practice one day and I just walked into my home and I remember just my family being sad. And I find my mother uh, in her room and she's just uh, heartbroken. Um, there were raids that were taking place in our community. Uh, SB 1070 caused this uh, fear in our community where police would, would come into our neighborhoods and literally uh, knock down doors and uh, take families uh, out of our uh, community. And uh, that day, uh, my mother uh, went through an experience that my family and I uh, still remember to this day where it's, it caused a lot of pain, but that was just the reality of living in a state where, uh, where we've seen some of the most anti-immigrant bills being passed, and it just caused a lot of fear in, in our family. And we saw many families from our own community uh, leave to other states. We saw family, uh, families move back to Mexico, and this was just what SB 1070 caused. And, uh, Right now, there's a lot of fear in my own community, uh, in myself. Uh, in the next couple months, uh, with the new change of administration in Washington, we might see changes uh, that will affect uh, myself, my community. Uh, right now, I am currently under DACA. Uh, DACA gives me a tempor temporary um, permit to work here legally in the United States, be able to study. Uh, and through that, I was able to graduate from Arizona State University this past May. Uh, I saw my sister. She was uh, a big uh, uh, example for my family and my community. Uh, she graduated uh, from ASU a few years ago. Ricardo graduated. And uh, we are just uh, dreamers. That's what we call ourselves, dreamers, who have been able to accomplish so much through this work permit, uh, and in reality, it's just, um, there's a chance that we lose this in the next couple months, uh, but our community, we are a community of faith, and we are, um, we are fighters in all, and giving up is not an option, mm -hmm. and uh, we've seen this uh, with our parents, our, our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, uh, and, all, and all of this, and just being an immigrant, is, it's, not, it's not that easy, but uh, we continue to trust God and just um, trusting that things will get better one day. Hmm. Would you guys thank Alfonso, please? <laughs> Let me say a couple things. Um, Really quickly, the first one, I remember hearing a, I'm going to speak directly into uh, 
what might be conjured up in, in different um, people in the room right now. So I remember hearing a message by a guy that was a big part, has been a big part of my spiritual life. His name's John Piper. And he was encountering and looking at Luke chapter 13, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So this moment where this religious leader and lawyer comes to Jesus and says, how do I enter eternal life? How do I inherit the kingdom of God? And he says, well, what do you think it is? And the, the man answers correctly. Love God with all your everything, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, do this and you'll live. And the man that says, seeking to justify himself. This is a great statement. Seeking to justify himself said, who's my neighbor? Jesus then tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you haven't read it, read it. Go read it. John Piper in his message says this. After reading this passage, he said, I was so struck with this question. If you stood before God in the end, and he put someone in front of you, like an Alfonso just was, or towards a homeless people person that's sitting upon a street, or um, somebody that's a drug addict, and in the end asked you, how, what did you feel? And he said, if at that moment, what comes out of your mouth is the yeah, but, and here's the things they didn't do. He said, I'm convinced God's going to look us straight in the face and go, I didn't ask you what you thought, I asked you what you felt. Let me say this really quickly. It's not that we don't have brains. God made us with brains. We have to think. These policy issues for our country are very, very substantive. But the first thing of the new self in Colossians chapter 3 is put on a heart of compassion. Other versions say put on compassion, which literally means bowels of mercy. That when you see the realities of our world and the pain that's experienced because what we believe we believe and is true, this reality of sin, not just the bad things that people do, but also the things that many of us forsake to do, that idea and the reality that sin is just real in the world. If we don't see the pain that this comes about and brings about upon people and feel deep in our guts, not justification, not reasons for why those people are in the pain, but just in the end, compassion. And I am convinced why that's so important is that God hears the cries of his people over and over and over again in the Bible. Think about the Israelites in the nation of Egypt. Think about the garrison demoniac who is crying night and day. Think about the psalm that says God hears the cries of the oppressed. In the end, he comes to lowly people like the shepherds because God hears the humble in heart. He hears the contrite in spirit. He goes to the needy. If we are going to do justice to Christmas, we can't ever make Christmas about what it does to make us feel good. We have to understand this is God coming into a world that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel good. Oscar Romero says this about Christmas. Only the poor, the hungry, those who need someone to come on their behalf, those who need someone to come on their behalf. You don't do justice to Christmas if all you make it is about the gifts you give to your kids or the moments that are experienced for you or metaphorically speaking, hot chocolate and peppermint. Christmas is about those who need someone to come on behalf of them. We'll have that someone and that someone is God. Emmanuel, God with us, without poverty of spirit, there can be no abundance of God. Go back one slide. We started in the second part of it. He says, no one can celebrate a genuine Christmas without being truly poor. The self-sufficient, the proud, 
Those who, because they have everything, look down on others. Those who have no need, even of God, for them there will be no Christmas. Now let me pause there, and we're going to read the second part again. There are all kinds of people who thought they had God, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that Jesus displays in the Sermon on the Mount actually didn't have God. And he confronts them always. Then Oscar Romero says, only the poor, the hungry, those who need someone to come on their behalf will have that someone, that someone is God, Emmanuel, God without a, with us, without poverty of spirit. Now here's what poverty of spirit means. That's what the beatitude starts with. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke just says, blessed are the poor. Poor in spirit is the humility in your spirit to such a level that even if God's given you much, you can identify with the oppressed, with the vulnerable. You can identify with those who are poor, those who have need, those who are weeping tears. That's why the Beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's all what the gospel's about. So when he brings this promise, fundamentally, in this section, where he begins to literally preach the gospel, and he says, for unto you, who? The shepherds, is born this day. For unto you is born this day, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you, that you will find a, bab a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So I want to stop here just to make concluding points. He says, for unto you is born this day, unto the shepherds, the poor, the vulnerable, the overlooked, the outcasts, is born this day in the city of David. What's the city of David? It's in the passage later on where they go. Anybody know what the city of David is? What's the city? Bethlehem. So we said he came to shepherds. Look at where he goes. Bethlehem. At the time, Mary and Joseph had to go to a census. Inside what's now known as Israel, they had to go to the area where their tribe, their clan was, right? Uh, fundamentally. Everybody else in the Roman Empire didn't do that, but in Israel, they had to go to where their clan was. But Bethlehem, where God comes in the city of David, is born one. Bethlehem. Look at this passage in Micah. There's a passage in Micah, but you, O Bethlehem, you who are too little, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Where does he come? To the town that's too small to be recognized as actually a part of Judah. But from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, the ancient of days. You know what that means, the ancient of days? He's the Lord, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. Now, how does he come? He comes to a woman who's scoffed and scorned because she's impregnated by the Holy Spirit. She's a young woman, and then she begins to give birth in a manger, right? Here's the way it was. There wasn't a room in the end. This manger's where all the horses were. The worst song at Christmas, the most untrue, it's a nice song, I shouldn't say it's the worst, it's a nice song, but it's totally untrue, was, is Silent Night. There's a song that a girl named Jill Phillips did called It's Not a Silent Night, where she brings out, there were animals everywhere, there was animal dung everywhere, it stunk like crazy, right? She's bleeding, there is no anesthetic, there is no epidural, this woman, this was not silent, she's screaming out loud, it was not a silent night. The baby's born, and where do they put the baby? In a manger. You want to know what a manger was? The feeding trough for the animals. So here's what I want to say to you. Why in the world does God speak the announcement of the gospel to the shepherds? Do it in Bethlehem. 
do it through a virgin woman. And then when the baby's born, the Lord of glory place him in a feeding trough with animals, which the stench, with the stench of their dung all around them. Luke says this in the gospel. Jesus opens the scroll in Luke chapter 4, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Folks, this is all over the Bible. And if this isn't what Christmas is to us, it's an injustice to Christmas. For those of us who say we believe the Bible, where the Christmas story comes from, to see all of this, to go, that's the heart of God, that's the compassion of God, and for us to ever turn our face away from the vulnerable, from the oppressed, from the conquered, from the poor. This displays the gospel. This is why I'm so indebted and so grateful for Neighborhood Ministries is not because they need us and they just need our checks, right? But we need them. We need to see Jesus in these faces to such a level that we actually live the life of God, that we actually understand what it means and live out the blessed life that the Beatitudes say that have come for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace, your mercy, your kindness to us in Christ. God, we need you uh, to meet us. We thank you so much that in our very city, just down the road from us, maybe right around the corner, are people that are going to help us see you in ways and with depth that we have never seen before. God, I thank you so much for Neighborhood Ministries. Thank you for Alfonso being here. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come for those who are in need. God, for those of us who are in here, uh, who really are comfortable and in the end don't at the gut of gut level believe that we need a Savior, God, uh, embark upon us, come after us, in your love, pursue us. God, for those of us who are totally beat up and broken and don't even know um, ultimately if you're real because it doesn't feel like you have met us. I pray that in some tangible way, some maybe even small way, you would display your love to those of us who are in this room. God, let us forever be a people who rejoice with those who rejoice and who weep with those who weep. In Christ's name we pray, amen.